Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning as you've met us in this place. As we prayed, Jesus, would you open our hearts, uh, that your word would shape us and form us. And would you help my words to be your words for your people, we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michelle. Pardon me. So our series, as we wrap up the book of Amos and we head towards Christmas, our series ends with this final vision of God standing beside the altar. And as I said, we have kind of two parts to the passage. There's a negative part that emphasizes God's judgment, and then there's a positive part that talks about God's restoration, that his judgment will not ultimately end in destruction, but in renewal. So the first 10 verses and then the last five verses. The first 10 verses are all about destruction. This is the kind of the doozy part. Verses 1 to 10, it's, it's all about the inescapability of God's judgment. And you think, why, why are we back to judgment again? Uh, it's good thing we didn't draw out Amos any further because I think we would all get sort of depressed by the end of it, right? Uh, but why judgment at all? And as we've seen through the series, Israel has abandoned God and his ways. And some of the key ways in which they've done that have been by giving themselves over to idol worship and by oppressing the poor or injustice to the poor. That's why God is intervening. So if you look at verse 1, uh, it starts with this interesting image. It says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. The, the capitals and the thresholds would, would be talking about the structure in the temple. And so God's saying, we're going we're gonna to stretch, we're going to shatter, we're going to shake the whole of the temple, the whole of this system, we're going to shake from top to bottom. All of this is uh, under God's judgment. In some sense, he's going to shatter their pagan temples because we know that they were involved in idol worship. And no one can escape. If you look at verses 2 to 4, it, it lists all sorts of places where a person might try to go to get away from God. Right? If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. So this is sort of the bottom of the earth. If they climb up to heaven, sort of the top of the earth, I'm just going to bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, that's sort of the mountaintop, place of worship perhaps, I will still search for them and take them. If they try to hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Sort of God's in control of every, every place where you might try to go to get away from God, God can still come and find you. There's nowhere in all creation that you can escape God's justice. And you know, that's true also in our lives today. You can try to run from God. You can try to ignore God. You can try to dismiss him. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. Eventually, God will find you. He will get you. And then you'll have to decide uh, what you will do with him and whether he really is your Lord or he's something else. So there's nowhere to escape from God. And this, this whole idea of God coming after them and then potentially sort of scattering them to the nations uh, in exile goes back to Deuteronomy 28. And I want to read Deuteronomy 28, 64 to 68, because what's happening in Amos is essentially God's promise to his people is finally coming true. It's finally being fulfilled. This is what God had told Moses would happen. And now we're seeing it. So look back at Deuteronomy 28. It says this. This is verse 64. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. 
And there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. And among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. And there the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. And you will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you'll say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you'll say, if only it were morning. Because of the terror that will fill your hearts and the sights that your eyes will see, the Lord will, and this is the reversal, listen to this, the Lord will send you back in ships to Egypt. On a journey I, should, I said you should never make again. And there you will offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female servants, but no one will buy you. And this is a, that's a pretty striking word if you think about Israel's own history. God bringing them out of Egypt, God reconciling them and redeeming them as his people out of slavery. And here God's saying, you're going to turn away from me to such a degree that you'll actually go back to slavery, back to where uh, you should never have gone back to, but you won't even be able to do that. You won't even be able to fulfill that properly because I've called you into something else. And what's interesting is even in the midst of all of this, all of this prophetic word about judgment and about God's holiness and God making things right despite the people's sin and, and all the things that could happen to them when they turn away, we still have this glimpse of God's forgiveness and his restoration as Israel and as the nations come to him with repentance. And so even though the word is very strong, it's probably stronger than we feel comfortable with, it should unsettle us. You know, it should be this, this thing where we read a passage like this and go, God, you're kind of going too far. I don't really like that. Thank you. Could you just sort of dial that down a little bit? feels a little bit extreme, but it's meant to unsettle us. It's meant to, co to cause us to pause and to recognize we can be like these people too. We can also turn from God. We can also choose to live in sin, and there's real consequences. And so it's meant to meant to cause us to reflect and really evaluate our own hearts and our own lives and and to remember that this is paired with god's forgiveness as well and so you get this dramatic message and then verses five to six uh describes god's character as he's the all-powerful creator god he's not just a, a sort of local deity but he is the god of the whole cosmos and then verses seven to eight are you not like the Cushites to me, people of Israel, declares the Lord. The Cushites lived south of Egypt. They're sort of at the edge of the world, you might say. And God is saying, all peoples, not just you, Israel, all peoples are under my providential care. I'm the Lord of all of this, and I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, he says. Uh, Israel will be shaken uh, and will be uh, sort of uh, sifted, right? You get this picture in verse 9 of God shaking a sieve and, and dealing with Israel and her, her brokenness and her sinfulness, uh, but she will not be utterly destroyed. And uh, what a pairing when we, when we look around our world today and see violence again in the Middle East and, and try to come to grips with what's happening there. You know, I think it's, it's very appropriate for us to say that we mourn the violence towards innocence. Uh, we mourn the loss of life. Um, and we pray for God's kingdom to come, for God's wisdom and his grace as people try to figure out what the best way forward is. Um, 
recognizing that there's Christians in Israel, there's Christians in Palestine, and what is the, the message and the hope of the church at this time is what it's always been, which is to love God and to love one another. And the way of violence does not, um, does not bring that about as much as defending against terror uh, certainly does make sense. And so trying to, to navigate that's incredibly difficult, I think, for some. For us here in the West, it's, it's a challenge. Um, but we recognize uh, it's different for us because we're not used to violence. Um, but in Israel's own history and in the history of the world, this is not unusual. And God uh, is still at work and so uses nations uh, to bring about his purposes. Um, but in light of that, it's, it's interesting that we find ourselves at a passage about Israel, uh, about the people of God seeking to live for God in difficult times, right? And that's a message that applies not just to the state of Israel, to ethnic Israel, but to the people of God, the church as well, that our calling is to understand what it means to follow God regardless of the places that he's planted us. And while we don't face terrorist attacks here and now, we also face uh, a secular ideology in our world uh, that is also an attack in some sense against the church and against God and against uh, the values that uh, have been central to our lives and to our country uh, since its inception. And so we have a different sort of, of war, you might say, happening around us. It's an it's a ideological war. It's a cultural war, you could say. And uh, the same call comes to us as it does to the people of God throughout the ages, that we're to be faithful to him. Uh, we're faithful to Jesus alone. Uh, we're faithful to God. And I think, you know, it's, it's worth noting here for Israel that here they are, a people to whom God has spoken clearly, directly, uh, revealed himself in miraculous ways, in mighty ways, and yet they still uh, choose to ignore him. They still choose their own sinfulness. And God is calling them back to himself. And uh, how much more we are called. You may not have had God speak uh, dramatically like a voice from heaven into your life. I haven't. Maybe you have. That's pretty cool if you have. Um, even with dramatic things like that, we can still be pulled away towards sin and towards our own sort of vices and our own desires, right? And the call for us always is to repent of our sin and turn back to God. Always. That is always the call for us. No matter what uh, is going on in our lives. So that's, that's sort of the judgment part. Now let's turn and talk about how the book ends. And I think it's really fitting that the book ends in this way. We've had a lot of talk about God's judgment. And a lot of talk about Israel's fallenness and brokenness and sin. And then the book ends with like this, this sudden turn towards what God's wanting to do, God's restoration. So part two is God's restoration. Look at verses 11 to 15. In light of all of this, in light of all this, I will, you know, they're, they're going to be taken with a sword. They're going to go into exile. Uh, this is the God who touches the earth and it melts, right? Uh, in light of all of that, verse 11, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen. Now that might sound kind of like, Okay, we're setting up a tent. Great. Uh, but that refers to the family of David, to the line of David. And what that means is that God will repair, rebuild the Davidic line. The Davidic line is the, the line of the king. This is the line that, that God had sworn 
and covenanted with Israel, covenanted with the king that David's line would never fail. That from David's line, God had, God had chosen to work with humans to bring about his purposes. He chose David's line. Didn't have to, but he chooses to involve us in his purposes. And Amos's audience, again, remember, this is not Judah, this is Israel. And Israel, at this point, had specifically rejected the Davidic, the Davidic king. And so God is saying, I'm going to raise up the king again. I'm going to repair its breaches. I'm going to raise it up out of these ruins. I'm going to rebuild it as in the days of old. God is committed to blessing his people. And he's committed to blessing his world through the family of David. Think to 2 Samuel 7. This is where God first makes this commitment to the line of David. 2 Samuel 7, 15 to 16, he says, But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. He's talking about David. Whom I have removed from before you. And this is now to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. And notice that this means for the house of David to be rebuilt, it will also be a blessing to the nations. Look at verse 12. They may possess the remnant of Eden, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. There's this sense in which as, as the kingdom of David, as the line of David is reestablished and rebuilt, it is meant to be a blessing to the nations around. And you may think, oh, that's great, a future king of some kind. But you know what's interesting is James, the Apostle James, cites this passage in Acts 15. When they're trying to figure out what did the, the death and resurrection of Jesus mean, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, what did it mean for us? How has it changed human history? The Apostle James goes, this is Amos 9 coming true. And look at how he does this. this is, if you want to look, it's in Acts 15. This is the early church trying to understand God's plan of restoring Israel and how that's now been fulfilled not through a political king who will sit on the throne, but through Jesus from the line of David, the true Messiah king, the servant king who lets himself be killed. This is what James says. He says, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And now he's quoting Amos 9. He says, after this I will rebuild, return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. And so in trying to understand how Amos 9 comes true, James, the apostle, and the early church said, it's Jesus and his messianic reign that's inaugurated at his resurrection. That is the moment when God restored David's tent. It wasn't the rebuilding of some sort of political leader, it wasn't some sort of just little geographical entity king, someone who sort of sat on the throne and tried to reign well for a few years. No, those were images of what God was going to do. But we see it fulfilled fully and completely at the reigning of King Jesus, who was crucified on the tree for us, who wore the crown of thorns for us, that as he is raised up, as he is exalted, as he is enthroned at his crucifixion, and now reigns and is resurrected and is alive, that is the rebuilding of David's throne. And from that moment on, we will now see not just the, the restoration of Israel, but we'll see the return 
of Gentile nations back to God, says James. And so now we can go, and this is what they're trying to discern. How do we, what do we do? Do we send missionaries off to Italy, right? What do we do? And they're deciding, yes, we have to. This message isn't just for ethnic Israel. This message that God has come and taken on flesh and went to the cross for our sins and died in our place and is raised to life so that we can be saved and set free from sin and death is not just for Israel, it's for the whole world, and that was always God's plan. And so James looks back to Amos. It's a good example of how you read Scripture and how you see how the Old Testament's fulfilled in the New and how they're reading the Old Testament Christologically and seeing how Jesus fulfills what's going on there. And so he says, now we need to go. And that's where Paul says, let's go, right? And off he goes on his little missionary journeys. Um, but that idea of God uh, setting apart a people, setting apart Israel, a family, is always to be a blessing to the other nations. That goes all the way back to Genesis 12. That Abram, the, the promise to Abraham is that your family will be established to be a blessing to the nations. And that looks ahead to Jesus. That Jesus coming, his, the whole situation in and through Israel, from being chosen as a family to the kingdom, and now is, uh, Jesus dying and rising again, is all about the glory and the salvation of God now bursting out from Israel to cover the whole world, that all the nations could come in and receive and, and be kind of reconciled back to God. That's the picture. And that's what Amos is envisioning here at the end. And so we're sort of looking ahead, not just to some future day in Amos' time, but to how Jesus actually fulfills this call, uh, this restoration. And then what happens in verses 13 to 15, you get this vision. It's almost like a return to Garden of Eden stuff, isn't it? It's sort of this picture of, of uh, abundant, restored land. And so often the land is a picture of God's blessing. What's happening in the land reflects the people's relationship with God. Look at verse 13. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. It's like the crops are so good, like we can't, we're, we're catching up to each other. Things are producing so much, uh, they're running into one another, trying to keep up with it all. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. That's one of, not to have a, a major sidetrack here, um, but there's several passages. Now, that, that might just be a block for you, because when you think alcohol, you think bad. And that's not terrible to think that. Um, but biblically, there's several passages, including this one, where wine is a picture of God's blessing and goodness. Um, so the point there is not it's bad. The point there is it's good. Um, so just, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying we can all go be alcoholics. I'm just saying that's what the Bible is doing. It's not Nicholas. It's what the Bible's doing. It's saying this is really good. It's really good. It's God's bounty and blessing and obviously... You do that in moderation, right? That's just clear from the Bible. It's like we don't get drunk, um, but there's several places throughout Scripture where bread and wine and oil are all pictures of God's favor and blessing and creation being restored and all of that. So there you go. But it's this picture of, of abundance and restoration, that as the king is restored, as, as Jesus is on the throne, it looks forward to this future day where God's, God's creation, his earth, the whole world will also be renewed. And it's called good. Here, here God's creation is a blessing, and it's a gift. Uh, it's, 
that the earth is the Lord's after all, right? We say the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, because it actually is. Uh, it's his. And his land, his creation is given to us as food. Uh, the land, you could say, creation, the non-human creation, gives its life to sustain us. You're alive today because creation gives its life for you. I hope you realize that this morning. And in the ultimate reality of that, which we'll celebrate in a few moments, Jesus gives his life and his body and his blood is symbolized as food for us. This bread and this cup that brings us from death into life. Jesus, you could say, gives himself for the life of the world, much like creation gives itself to sustain us. And of course, um, Jesus as food for us is a big part of what his ministry is about. Jesus himself talks about himself as food and to such a degree that people leave him because it's a little bit too weird. And Jesus says to his disciples, will you come after me too? This is John 6. And they say, no, you have the words of eternal life. Um, that Jesus gives himself for the life of the world. Of course, what's Jesus put in when he's born? Eating trough. Because he'll give himself as food for the life of the world. Uh, it's not just cozy manger bed, though it is that, of course, also. But he will give himself uh, as life for us. And so we get this picture of, of abundance and feast and grapes and wine and gardens and fruit. And that's all sort of seen in a positive light of God's life and blessing to come. Um, one way to think of that is, is food is God's love made edible for you. Uh, whenever you eat creation, which you do often, uh, that is God's love made edible and nutritious for you. Uh, nourishment for you that sustains us. And so what if humanity, if that's creation, what if humanity, look at verse 14, humanity's right in there, their fortunes as a people. They're rebuilding the cities and they're inhabiting them and they're making gardens and they're doing this stuff and they're living right in the midst, uh, enjoying God and enjoying his creation and restored at long last. And all of that, that whole picture of sort of restoration and goodness is contingent on recognizing uh, the Davidic king who's come to save us, recognizing Jesus and who he is. And so Amos just sort of ends uh, right there on that note, just sort of ends. But I think its effects sort of linger for us because Amos is a story about a people who know God or who once knew God, a people who have religion but have turned away from the living God. That's what Amos is about. Israel's very religious here, and yet they're very far from God. And that brings me to sort of a final sort of question for us, is if, if in Amos, Israel's very religious, yet far from God, how can you know today if you're a true Christian? Do the sort of trappings of, of a religious life, uh, are they just sort of the things you do, or do you actually know God? Because you can do all the religious stuff and yet still be far from God, Amos says, right? There's a difference. It's very, very simple. If you're wondering, how do I know if I'm a true Christian? It's really, really simple. There's a difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. There's a difference between knowing facts about God and, and knowing him intellectually and actually knowing him in relationship. And one is sort of just an intellectual thought about someone, and the other is biblical faith. See, even the devil and the demons have an intellectual assent about God. They know of God. They know who he is. 
But that doesn't lead to a transformed life. They know all of the right things. They understand theologically what's going on. But that doesn't, they have not surrendered to God. They've not bowed the knee, we would say. And so there's a difference between simply knowing of God and knowing God. And the difference is a relationship with Christ. And a relationship with Jesus will transform your life. And so if you're wondering, am I a true Christian? Your life should begin to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's how you know. The Bible calls it fruit, right? We start to see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. A real Christian is not someone who sort of just grew up in a Christian family and does good things and then somehow thinks they've earned God's love. That's not what being a Christian is about. A true Christian is not someone who just sort of goes to church on Sundays and, you know, helps like little old ladies get across the street and does good things. Those things won't save you. You could come to church and come to every event in our bulletin all of your life and still go to hell. Those, those, the participation in those activities does not save you. What does Ephesians 2 say? Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, not by what you did to try to earn God's favor, not by works so that no one can boast. A real Christian, a true Christian, is someone who by faith has received the grace of God. And that grace of God has now transformed their lives through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. And it started to generate fruit within them. But it's not on the basis of what we did. And so we come to the end of Amos. And of course, as Christians on the other side of the cross, we say we need God, perhaps in a, in a, in a more personal sense we could just say we need jesus we need jesus that salvation is not based on our doing the right things our salvation is based on the grace of god through faith in jesus alone and again amos is about people who have turned to religion uh, and turned to injustice and they've moved far away from god in the midst of that there are people committing sin and God is calling them back to himself. I heard a great message uh, from a pastor, uh, Dr. Peter Tanchi, and he said this. He said, if you're committing sin and you're not walking right with God, God will do something. And that's Israel here in Amos, right? They're, they're committing sin, and God is intervening. God intervenes because God the Father disciplines his children I have four children, and because I love them, I discipline them. Pastor Brian has three children. I do not discipline the children of Pastor Brian. That's Pastor Brian's job, to discipline his children. The father, the loving father, disciplines his own children. And it may be, if you are sinning today, and nothing is happening to you, this is Dr. Peter Chan, this is not me, you need to ask is God really my father? 
if I'm living in sin and God is not responding and he's not calling me back to himself, was he really my father? God is a loving father. He loves you. His heart is to see you restored and forgiven and redeemed and transformed. And he'll do that when, when we sin, he calls us back to himself. And that is the message of Amos for us. That Israel in her sin is called back to God. God loves her. God loves you. And when my children break the rules, I'm not angry with them. I'm grieved with them. God is grieved when we break his rules because his rules set us up for life and wholeness. And so he's grieved when we turn against that. His rules are good. So whenever we disobey God, we're actually sort of hurting ourselves. When we sin, God is grieved. And when we believe him and when we trust in him, when we have biblical faith in him, when we are a true Christian, we've received Jesus and we're following him, the fruit of that life is obedience. And so then we do want to do the things that help us to grow in him. We do come to church on Sundays, not to earn God's favor, but because we want to respond with obedience to what he's done for us. And he calls us to gather together. And he calls us to worship him. And he calls us to a life of prayer and scripture and service and witness. All of those things that we talk about as disciples. And so here you are today. You're here in church. That's, I'm glad you're in church. That's great. But a real Christian is someone who's placed their faith in Jesus, not someone who just came to Dryden Gospel Church on a Sunday. As much as I love our church and our church family, the purpose of this is not to promote the, the, the entity of our church. The purpose of our gatherings is to worship and proclaim the risen Christ. Always. That is always our hope. So God calls us to life into repentance and into relationship. And that promise is for each and every one of us. And so I pray that, that that hope, that message of restoration, of God's love and forgiveness towards those that fall away from him, that that would take root in your hearts today. And let's pray as we come to the table now uh, that we would let God's Holy Spirit transform us uh, to act in obedience to him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning... Uh, we just thank you again for your word and we just pray that um, just as we have reflected on your goodness, on your holiness, the reality of our sin, we just pray this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes afresh to your heart, which is full of redemption and relationship and restoration towards us. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, this is the place where we recognize our own sinfulness, but also celebrate, Lord, that you took uh, the full uh, punishment for sin on the cross for us. That because of you, when you look at us, God, in our own sin, you see Jesus, who's gone in our place. So as we come today and we eat and drink and we're sustained by your creation, we're also saying in some meaningful way, Jesus, you're the one that sustains us. And our hope is in you today. We don't want to just do the stuff. We want to be faithful followers of you. And that means we give ourselves to you. We repent of our sins. And we ask you to come and fill us, Holy Spirit, to live uh, a meaningful life as your disciple. We ask this today in your name. Amen.